Welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. You should know that this episode was also recorded in video and can be watched on our website at theundrapedartist.com and also on YouTube at the Undraped Artist Podcast. Also, check out our show notes to learn more about today's guest. I hope you enjoy the show. Michael Shane Neal, welcome to the podcast, uh, The Undraped Artist. You are our second guest, so it's a huge honor to have you on the podcast. And uh, you go by Shane, correct? Yes, I do. Thank you so much. My, my mother still calls me Michael when she's upset at me. Oh, she does? <laughs> the story is that my um, mother wanted to name a son Mickey, and so she named me Michael and was going to call me Mickey. And my father and my grandmother wanted to name a son or a grandson Shane after the cowboy movie, Shane. Come back, Shane, that famous line. And Alan Ladd, cowboy movie. And so uh, it became Michael Shane, mother calling me Mickey for a while, my father and grandmother calling me Shane, and then Shane stuck. Oh, and, and no then, kidding. And so then, you know, first very first day of school, you know, they always call your first name. So it's Michael, Michael, and I say, right. no, I didn't go by Shane. I did that for years in school. And then I go to college and ultimately start studying art. And then I found out that all the artists that I loved had three names. And I thought, wait a minute, I've been using my three names all my life. I'm set. Um, oh. So that, but anyway, I, I, I go by Shane. Yeah, oh, that makes it really authentic. You know, I've heard of a lot <laughs> of artists that do that because their name's too common. So they'll add a middle name, but that's not the case for you, it sounds like. No, in fact, when I went to get my checking account, my first checking account when I was 16 years old, and I said, I'd like to put Shane Neal on the check. And the lady said, you've got to put your first name as well, because you've got your first name on your driver's license, hmm. which, of course, the driver's license people said I had to put my first name as well. Right. well I've had my three names on things for years, um, but I, I was thrilled when I began to realize that, you know, William Merritt Chase and John Singer Sargent and Howard Chandler Christie and Everett Raymond Kinsler, they all had these, all these three great names. So anyway, yeah, that is cool. Three. It's got a nice ring got, to it. <laughs> it does. So tell me a little bit about your background. Where are you from? Where were you raised? How did you get into the into this art field? Uh, born in Nashville, Tennessee. I am a sixth generation Nashvillian. Uh, my kids are now seven. My uh, third great grandfather came to Tennessee from North Carolina on my mother's side of the family. They're um, Welsh. English with a little German in there. Um, my father's family, Scottish, they came to this country about 150 years ago from an area called Falkirk, Scotland. And um, so I was raised here in Nashville and I went to school here at public school and um, then graduated high school and went to a school, a college here in Nashville called Lipscomb University. At that time it was called Lipscomb College. And um, I started as a biology major and two years into it, decided I didn't want to study science. And I had loved to draw all my life. And so I decided to take an art class. And uh, that was the beginning of um, what I'm doing today. Uh, but I love to draw as a kid. I mean, I grew up loving to draw. I think most of us do that are artists. That's sort of the passion I think that we have is loving to sit down and draw. Yeah. So did you get resistance when you decided to go into art? 
from family or friends no, or anybody? No, no. And so that's an important, that's actually an important um, story because I just lost my father who died a month ago. He was uh, unfortunately diagnosed with cancer. Um, and we were told he would have three months to live and he made it 11. So we're so oh, grateful yeah. that the Lord gave us an extra year with him. And he, he was uh, really only really, only really sick for two days. It was extraordinary. But all this to tell you that there's, you know, it was always in everybody's life, important moments and important people. My parents happened to be uh, two extremely supportive parents. My father was a, uh, a salesman. He, he started with a company he worked for 40 years with, started basically driving a truck. And when he left there, he was the director of their marketing and he had been with them all his career. Um, and my mother was a stay-at-home mom until uh, I was a teenager. And then she took a a job in a human resource department and worked um, while I was in college. I guess she was totally worked. I mean, total, I guess she worked about 15 or 20 years. But um, so my parents were supportive from the very beginning. Neither one of them creative, but my mom's family had a lot of musicians um, and, I, and I had a cousin that made his living for many years as a, uh, a musician and a songwriter. Um, so I'm in school. I'm going to be, I think, a doctor. I'm studying biology. And my gut tells me it's the wrong thing. And I come home and I'm trying to decide what I'm going to do next semester. And I tell my folks that I don't know what I want to do. And mother says, why don't you take a drawing class? You always love to draw. And it might give you sort of um, an opportunity to you know, sort of gain your footing again and clear your mind and do something you really enjoy. And of course, before long, I suddenly realized that I loved it more than anything in the world. And this is what I thought I wanted to do, but had no clue. I had no clue what I could do with it. I mean, I have not, I mean, I have no idea. We have no artists in our family. I know no artists except for my painting instructor. And um, so my father, first off, he didn't say, are you kidding me? I'm not paying for that education. I mean, you were going to be a doctor and he was paying for my education and he didn't pull the plug on that. And number two, he just said, well, what does that mean exactly? And let's see if we can understand this better. What, what exactly would you do with a, a degree in art? And um, uh, I recently asked him, I said, Dad, why, um, why didn't you tell me I would starve to death? You know, why didn't you say, have you lost your mind? I'm not doing that. And he said, well, first off, in the beginning, I didn't know a lot about it, but I knew you and I trusted you. And secondly, who was I? to tell somebody who had a passion or a drive to do something that they couldn't do it. I, he said, I thought it would be better for you to try really hard to do it. And then if it didn't work out, you would know that on your own. And there was no one that had told you from the beginning that you weren't going to succeed. And I thought that is like the wisdom of seriously. You know, like, I mean, it's like the old wise men talking. And my father was probably all of, let's see, he was 24 when he had me. So what was he? 40? I don't know, 45? I mean, it was not an old man, but um, he had certainly learned a lot in life. And so I, I, I thanked him again and again. In fact, the last thing I said to my dad before he passed away, and I don't know if he heard me or not, um, but I just kissed him on his forehead and I said, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. You imagine how things would have been different if you had gotten resistance and given into it. No, I yeah. can't imagine. I, and, you know, everybody says you're going to starve, you're going to starve. My father never said it one time. My mother never said it one time. They encouraged me every day. And when I left school, now one thing that my dad had suggested along the way, he had, he had gotten to know a guy that held, had owned a, a major 
advertising agency. And dad said to me at one point, do you think you should maybe consider getting your degree in graphic design and advertising? And then if you want to go and paint, do that. But then if it doesn't work out painting, you know, maybe you could move back into graphic design or something. And I said, OK, I'll do that. So I got my degree in graphic design and advertising. But when I left school, he said, OK, so you want to paint? And I said, that's what I want to do. And he said, let's see if we can find you a, a small studio somewhere. You've got so to be he and I, me. this is true story. This is this is true. My dad started asking people. He started talking to people in the grocery store industry and restaurant industry because they being that he worked for a bakery, you know, they had all these people they serviced and they sold, you know, products to. Um, and we went and looked at little tiny, you know, basement rooms that were, you know, had tiny window that was maybe two hundred fifty dollars a month in 1990 and nineteen ninety one. And um so I had I had um, I ran into a friend of mine who was a instructor at my university, and she said, um, my husband has an architectural firm and he's got a few offices. It was during this downturn during the 1990, 91 recession. And she said, he's got a couple of offices that he's not using. And would you like to look at those? So my dad drives me over there one day. We go and look at the room. It had a built in desk in the middle of the room and one little tiny north window, which was it was a window facing north. That's what I should say. It wasn't a, really a north window. It was a window facing north. And uh, the rent was $350 a month. And, Wait, what, um, and when was this? What year would this have been? That was 1991. So, so that's pretty expensive be, for 91. I keep on my phone. Everybody should have one of these. I keep a, an inflation calculator on my phone. Because my so first rent was about $300, and that was in 2002, so 11 years later. That's about $735 today. Now, for a studio, you, for your first studio, that's expensive. So that's per month. Yeah, that's expensive. I was selling my paintings for uh, you know, $250 for a painting, and maybe. So, what I had, I had just gotten a commission before I graduated to paint three kids for a doctor. And I was being paid fifteen hundred dollars for the three paintings, so that was that was enough. Like I could survive three months on rent. So, so the main part of this was that it was in a nice neighborhood, and that was the thing that Dad was sort of into. He was like, you know, this is a nice neighborhood, so it looks like this is where you know it would be great if you could have a studio here because when people are coming to see you, they would feel comfortable in the space. And so we're sitting in the we're sitting in the driveway of this building trying to decide what I should do. You know, should I take it, you know, for the $350 a month? And uh, dad said, you know what? There's never a time in your life where this, we'll have a greater chance of making this work. You're not married. You don't have kids. You don't have any debt. You're blowing my said, mind. No, he's unbelievable. He is incredible. So, he should uh, have an award. Can you imagine how much I'm going to miss him because oh. I'm still asking advice for everything. So he said, I think you should do it. And if it doesn't work out, Terry, the, the owner of the architectural firm said, you can do it in a month to month. You don't have to sign a year lease. So that was an advantage. I didn't have to sign a year lease. And there was another thing that after I, so I said, yes. And, and only on faith and my dad encouraging me to try it. He's the one that helped me weekend after weekend, get the place sort of ready and tear out the desk in the room and all that. And uh, Terry Bates, who's still my friend and has designed two studios for me and is getting ready to design a third studio for me. He's actually designed it already. Um, getting ready to help me build one. Um, Harry came to me one day and he said, you know what? I know this is a big stretch for you and a big deal, 
And he said, if at some point there's a month where you can't quite make the rent, I'll come in your studio and I'll shop. And if what? I see a painting, I'll apply it to the rent. You, had, you don't think, you don't think, uh, not only was, not only was God shining his face on me, he was. But he gave me this incredible support system. I mean, I, I mean, I admit, I, I hit the lottery when it came to parents and I hit the lottery when it came to um, God opening doors for me. And I just going, you know, having, being fortunate enough to step through them. And, um, so anyway, that was my start. So 1990 is when I officially began painting full-time. I was still going to school, but I quit my three other little part-time jobs that I had because I had enough work that I was making more money doing that than I was actually you know, working at the jewelry store or working at the old folks' home and all that's all different stories. So but, just to give us some um, perspective, when were you born? 1968. Okay. All right. So you were 22. About I was in 20, 1990. 21 when I graduated. Yeah. Okay. So I was 20, 21 when I, I was 21 when I got my first commission. Okay. I was 21 years old. Okay. And then uh, I was 21 when I graduated. And um, I, my goal, I was offered an, a, a full time position. I did an internship for one year, my senior year at the graphic design agency that I was telling you my dad knew the owner. And, um, and, I, and and also, I think I should give a little bit of, for those people that might be interested, um, I am was not born with a silver spoon in my mouth at all. My father was um, a man who uh, had a 10th grade education from high school. He started working when he was nine years old. Um, he, uh, my mother was from a you know, very humble beginnings. And my father worked his entire life for every penny that he had. And he never gave me a penny. Uh, my father uh, paid for my education. But in terms of my dad ever handing me a $100 bill or a check for my, never, not a penny. Ever. Um, he would take me out to dinner and he would pay for a round of golf. But uh, I never asked my father for a dollar and he never gave me a dollar. So every penny that I've earned in my life, I've earned. I, I, no one's ever given me any uh, money, but they have given me incredible support. And I wasn't seeking that, you know, I mean, but I mean, my, the reason I tell you that, Jeff, is only so I don't want anybody listening to that say, I bet, you know, his parents had a bunch of money and they made sure that he was, you know, you know, uh, had a security blanket. I didn't. If I didn't pay my rent, I was going to lose the studio. That's the way it was. Yeah. So, um, you know what, anyway. you know what um, is interesting about this, though, it almost... Uh, well, it's a testament to the impact that good influence has that money, money can't really buy, you know, that's right. I mean, like your dad's, your dad's influence, your dad's guidance. I mean, to put you in a rich neighborhood or at least a uh, upper class neighborhood. I mean, the foresight that he had is mind blowing. I mean, just, yeah. by, just, just let me give you a little contrast here. So my parents are, oh, I also grew up relatively poor. My parents also had very limited educations, a little more than your dad, but not much more. And, and I got the exact opposite. I mean, one time my mom said to me when I told her I sold a painting for $250, she said, who in their right mind would buy a painting for $250? <laughs> and then I said, mom, they sell paintings for tens of thousands. And I didn't even realize it's more than that at the time. And she goes, oh, Jeff, don't be so naive. And yeah, so, <laughs> so I'm listening to you and thinking, and my parents, it came from a place of love. It's just that your dad, it's not that you're, you're, you're I mean, it, 
my parents were great people, but what's amazing to me is that your dad had so much wisdom. Like to Yeah, he had this incredible instinct. I yeah. remember when I was when I was fifteen, he told me that he'd gotten me a job to work at the bakery where, you know, the company so they bake bread and things like that. He got me a job for the summer working in the bakery. Now, you know, as I, I gave his eulogy, and one of the things I said in the eulogy was he got me my first job. My father told me I was going to work. That's what it was. I mean, I, I, it wasn't a choice. And so the summer job was this. Now, here's again, Jeff, give you the sense of the commitment and what kind of father I had. Uh, and again, my mother equally as fantastic, um, just in you know a different way. So my father says, you're going to work in the bakery this summer. Okay, um, when do I go to work? Well, you're going to go at 10 p.m. at night, and you're going to work until 2 a.m. in the morning. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, as the bread comes off the line and a bag blower puffs up the bag and it puts the loaf of bread in and the twisty tie machine twists the thing on there, you're going to put a sticker on. The so think about Lucille Ball and the candy. Yeah, that's exactly episode. what I thought about. Okay, so the bread <laughs> is just cutting yeah. like this for hours. I mean, I get breaks, but, you know, the and here, and I'm putting the stickers on, I'm putting the stickers on, and it's, and there's no air conditioning in the bakery. It's like 90 still at night in, in Tennessee in the summertime, you know, near 100 during the day, no air conditioning in the bakery, oven's going. So at night, it's the coolest it'll ever be. That's why they're baking all night long. Right, right. And it's still you know, 90 degrees in there. And, and I'm humid. wearing hair <laughs> and humid. And, you know, and so he would drop me off. 9.45, and then he would come pick me up at 2.15 in the morning. This is the commitment he made. He would come and get me in the middle of the night and then go back to bed and then get up and go to work. And so at the end of this miserable experience, um, he said to me, well, what did you think about your job this summer? And I said, I hated it. And he said, that's good. I'm glad you didn't like it. You know, that's kind of good. And he said, there's nothing wrong with this job, but if you don't get an education, the likelihood is you may start doing it with something like this. You know, there may be something that you have to start doing. And he said, but there is nothing wrong with it if that's where you start. But I want you to start in a different place. But he said, let me tell you something. He said, if this is where you start, if you put those stickers on like nobody's ever done it, or if they tell you you've got to sweep the floor and you sweep this bakery like no one has ever swept the floor before, you won't be sleeping, oh, sorry, you won't be sweeping uh, floors for long and you won't be putting stickers on bread for long. Because if you do anything well and you do it with 110% of your heart, you, you will always be promoted. You'll always get another job and another job better than the last one you had. And so that was at 15 years old, I was given this idea that no matter what I was doing, if I gave it my all, then I would grow. I would get better. I would, I would have someone recognize it and they would want me to do something even better, more important. Yeah. Um, so anyhow, that was, that was a kind of, again, when I think back, I was 15. So he was, he was 39. I mean, you know, I think just such a child now, but I thought he was brilliant and he was smart and he was not smart in terms of, um, a degree, but he was smart in terms of just having God given common sense and good mm -hmm. and, and, and wisdom. So anyway, I, I obviously reflect on a lot on my father because having just lost him, he's on my mind, you know, a lot. Um, but my mother was, um, so supportive because anything I did, she thought was great. You know, it didn't matter what I drew or painted. She thought it was great. So she was always encouraging me and she was loving and supportive and, you know, cooked for me and gave me plenty to eat when I was barely making it in the beginning. I took this, I didn't take this job from the graphic design firm, come full circle. Um, I didn't take this job and the offer was, um, 
$12,500 a year plus benefits in 1991. So I would say today that must be like maybe 30 or 40,000 a year plus benefits. And I decided I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't take the job. But my goal was, can you make at least $12,500 a year painting? That was my goal. And when I say painting, I mean, it was anything. So uh, fruit, landscapes, um, interiors, portraits, you name it, lots of florals. And um, so my first year, I made $14,000. Uh, Congratulations. Was, That's awesome. Like, yes, I made $14,000. At 21 $2. or 22 by then. Yeah, I'm 20. I'm still, yeah, I'm 21, 22. Man. And uh, I'm paying my rent and I'm eating a lot of um, cereal, which is was the other thing I would, you know, I eat cereal on breakfast, cereal at lunchtime. And uh, a lot of times I go home for supper, go to my parents' house for supper. Mother was always cooking, so I had something to eat. But my, my, my point was to save every penny that I could. I could have had better lunches than cereal, but a box of cereal was super cheap. And I was just saying, well, hey, I could spend three or four dollars for lunch if I went to a fast food restaurant, or I could eat this bowl of cereal for 50 cents and then put, you know, two fifty-three dollars in the bank. And I had saved enough money at make selling paintings for three, four, five hundred dollars at a time. By my third year, 1993, was my worst year and still is my worst year um, ever. I just couldn't find any work. I couldn't sell anything. And um, I have no idea why. It just wasn't working that year. And I had to start living off of my savings and paying my rent out of my savings. And that was a valuable lesson that I was taught early on, but one that I have never forgotten. And I got to October of that year with just having hardly sold a painting all year. I was copying paintings. I was drawing every day. I would go out and paint with friends. And then I was getting to where I'm thinking, gee, I don't have enough money for materials. And so I would paint on top of old paintings, turn them upside down, you know, that sort of thing. And I was reading as much as I could. And, you know, those folks that are younger than us don't understand. I didn't have access. I mean, I had the library and the bookstore. But my daughter, Maddie, has more information at her fingertips on her phone than I probably did the first 25 years of my life, you know, in minutes. Um, and so... I, I, my, I turned to my painting, my, my car died. I had a Buick and uh, my Buick, which I'd had since high school, the car died and I didn't have any money to fix it. And um, I was talking to my painting instructor from college, Don Whitelaw. And I said, I just don't have any work and I'm running out of money. And my, my mother, my sweet mother was one night I was, you know, complaining about it. And she said, well, why don't, why don't you take a job at a fast food restaurant? You can get in and out of that kind of job quickly. And, I said, I, Mom, I can't like go to work at McDonald's. And what if somebody that bought a thousand dollar painting from me two years ago walked in working at McDonald's? You know, I mean, that, that I can't do that. And uh, she said, Well, she's trying to be helpful. And I said, Oh, I know you, I know. Um, so anyway, I was talking to Dawn, and Dawn said, didn't, didn't this lady come and talk to you about a portrait of her husband and two kids sometime this summer? And I said, Yeah, but she just never has done it. She said, You know what? I know who she is. Uh, I think she goes to church with me. I'm going to see if I can talk to her. And so one day, I think she actually literally stopped her in the aisle at church. And the next thing I know, this lady called me up and said, hey, I, I want to go forward with that project with the portrait of my father, I mean, my husband and my two boys. And it saved my life. It was, um, I forget the exact amount, but it might have been maybe $3,000. It was a pretty big painting. And um, 
that year, by the way, I didn't make $5,000. I think I made 4,000 and something dollars that whole year. But I actually asked Dawn later, I said, Dawn, what did you tell, uh, her name was Miss Lawrence. I said, what did you tell Miss Lawrence to get her to do it? And she said, I told her that she had better hurry, that your prices were going up. She had better oh, get nice. that, you know, and, um, uh, well, I mean, that, that says a lot. That says a lot for Dawn Whitelaw too, because she's, I mean, I'm assuming she's looking for work herself. Well, yes. I mean, Dawn was a working artist and, yeah. uh, she was always that way. She was always so, so supportive and sharing and, uh, you know, the, any competitiveness I felt from her was about all of us trying to get to be better painters, not about whether, you know, I got, and actually, Hey, that's a good point. Because Dawn ended up working for that family as well. She, um, that just shows you that, you know, you do something wonderful for someone else, it'll come back to you because they later commissioned her and she painted, I think maybe, um, I think memory serves me, it was the mother and the child, the daughter, the daughter, mother and daughter. Oh, later. Yeah, that's that? it. I've been part of that in 30 years. Um, so yeah, there you go. You do something nice for someone else and it, it'll, it'll come back to you. Yeah. So how did you, all right, so let's jump ahead a little bit. I know you studied with Raymond Kinsler. Is it, was this sometime quite a ways in the future or was it, um, oh. when did that start? Yeah. So um, I'm in college painting away. Dawn Whitelaw comes up to me one day and she says, you know, you have a painterliness naturally. It reminds me of an artist I studied with last summer named Ray Kinsler. I went to Maine and took a workshop with a man named Ray Kinsler. Have you ever heard of him? And I hadn't. I actually knew his work and didn't know it because I had this book on the president's portraits and the last painted portrait in the book, because I got the book when I was a kid and Jimmy Carter was president. So his picture was in the book, but it was a photograph. And then the last painted picture of all these painted portraits was Gerald Ford by Everett Raymond Kinsler. So I had looked at the painting many times, had tried to copy it in pencil when I was a kid. And I had no idea at that moment that this was the same Kinsler. Hmm. And so she said, go to the library and see if you can find a book called, called Painting Portraits um, by Ray Kinsler. Now, I often think to myself, what if I had gone that day and the book hadn't been there? But I walk across campus, I go into the library, walk up three flights of steps to go to the art section. There it is, Painting Portraits. I pull it off the shelf, I start flipping through it, and I'm like, this guy's stuff is incredible. And then I start reading. The first page is a, a quote by Sargent. And uh, I'm reading and I sit down in front of the shelf and it's like 140 pages long. I read the entire book that afternoon. So I didn't leave the library for like three or four hours. Oh my gosh. I checked, but I walked out with the book under my arm and I checked it out. I walked out and I thought to myself, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. I want to paint people. I want to be an artist that gets to meet fascinating people and paint people and, and, and have the quality of the work that this guy has. And, um, I read the book two or three times, underlined everything in it. And I used to, I can think back about traveling. I went to the mountains with my parents uh, near in Tennessee, East Tennessee, a place called Gatlinburg that um, fall. And I took the book with me for the, you know, to read it for the fifth time. And, you know, I, it just, it just cemented in my mind that this is what I wanted to do. And so I get out of school, I'm painting in my little studio. I donate a painting to a charity, a, a portrait to a charity auction. And it's a head and shoulders portrait. And someone comes up to a person that's organizing the event and said, oh, this is a nice portrait. You know, I once dated a portrait painter. 
And this guy said, oh, who was that? And she said, his name was Ray Kinsler. He lives in New York. And hmm. she, stars are guy, aligning, huh? Gosh, this guy's like, you're not going to believe this. This young man just worships Ray Kinsler and, you know, John Singer Sargent and all these great artists. And she said, you know, before I um, leave Nashville, I'd like to meet him. And this is like, why? I mean, but she did. And so this gentleman calls me up and says, this lady was interested in your work last night. She would like to meet you before she goes back to Montgomery, Alabama, where she's from. And um, so she comes to the studio. We have a delightful visit. And she said, you know, I still talk to Ray every now and then. I still give him a call. And next time I talk to him, I'm going to tell him about meeting you. And I'm thinking, oh, right. You know, why would, why in the world would she do this? But okay. So she leaves. That's that. I dream for a few days. Maybe she really will. You know, maybe she really will. And then I forget it because, you know, weeks and months pass by. I don't hear from her. And then one day she rings my phone. I'm, visiting, I'm at home visiting my parents for dinner. She rings my parents' phone number, which is one of the phone numbers I gave her. She had left a message at my studio number. She calls my parents. Mother says, hey, it's this lady named Janie Wall from Montgomery, Alabama. And I'm like, wait a minute. Oh, my gosh. So it's the woman in you, Ray Kinsler. And um, I'm sitting there talking with her. And she said, I just got off the phone with Ray. And I told him about you. And he said, the next time you're in New York, so Jeff, the next time you're in New York, he wants you to give him a call. Well, first off, I can't believe this is true. And secondly, the next time I'd been to New York would be my first time ever. Yeah. I'd never been to New York. And so I thank her. And she said, by the way, he said, that's his private telephone number. Don't give it out. And I said, okay. Well, to me, like I had this piece of gold that I didn't know what to do with. I mean, here's this famous artist. It's like, so if you're, if you just left law school and suddenly, John Roberts says, hey, here's my telephone number. Give me yeah. a call. I have Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, but, you know, it's all right. Give me a call. So, again, if you don't think I – by now, hopefully you see, I've led a charmed life because my best friend gets transferred to New York City with a company called Bankers Trust. And he calls me and says, I'm going to get a, an apartment for at Battery Park South on 2nd Avenue. It's, you know, the, the rent – is paid for the next two years while I've transitioned this office up here. If you can get up here, you can stay with me as long as you like. And so I scraped together as much money as I can find, which would get me a plane ticket to New York City. And in February of 1993, I fly to New York on a late evening flight. And I, I leave a message that night at like midnight, not thinking, not knowing at the time that his studio and his apartment were all kind of one. I'm thinking I'm calling, you know, an office. And so I wrote down every possible thing that I could think of that he might ask me when, when I spoke to him. And then I'm sitting down to try to call and leave a message. And I wrote down everything I would say when I called to leave the message. And uh, I think I hung up twice before the machine answered because I was so nervous. <laughs> I'm leaving this message. Next morning, my first full day in New York City. This is my first full day in New York. My My buddy... Uh, says, um, you're going to meet a friend of mine at the World Trade Center uh, and take the subway up to around 80th Street and go to the Met with, with him. And he'll show you around. You'll have a great time. He's off today. And um, and then he gets a phone call and he says, uh, oh, he can't go. He's got a stomach virus, but I'm just going to give you cab fare. I get He got $25 cab fare a day with this deal he was doing with Bankers Trust. I'm going to give you the cab fare, and you can take a cab up there. And I said, okay. Why am I telling you this story? The reason I'm telling you this story uh, is because that was the day 
that a person drove a truck into the basement of the World Trade Center and tried to blow up the World Trade Center in February of 1993. And I was supposed to catch a train there that morning with a guy. And we, we worked it out. We kept thinking it through it. I would have been at that train station about an hour and a half before that guy drove that, that truck down there. So I would have missed the whole thing, thank goodness. But still, that was the first day. Mm. Well, I'm getting ready to leave to go catch the cab and the phone rings and it's Ray Kinsler. I could not believe it. And he, he introduced himself. He said, I'd like to speak with Shane Neal. I said, this is he. And he could not have been nicer. And he was just um, very polite. And then he said, um, how long are you in New York? And I said, well, I'm here for a week. And he said, well, uh, regrettably, I am flying out today to go and visit my daughter in France. And I'm going to be there for 10 days. And she still lives there today. Oh, no. She's been 40 years. And he said, I'm going to miss you this trip. But he said, the next time you're in New York. <laughs> Give me a call. Or I thought, I will never be in New York City again in my life. But here's what happened. As I was getting off the phone, I said, uh, he said, well, I'm, I'm really sorry I can't see you. And I would have loved to have seen what you're doing. And I said, well, I brought a couple of drawings and some photographs. And he said, oh, I feel so bad that you've come all this way. He thought I was from Alabama because his friend was from Alabama. And he said, you've come all this way and I can't see you. He said, let me tell you, let me ask you something. Could you photograph the work and send it to me? And I said, sure. And so he said, well, here's my address. And so I was on cloud nine. I had spoken to my hero. I didn't think I'd ever talk to him again in my life. I'd spoken to him and he was nice. He was a nice guy. He told me a story one time, years later, he said, I was sitting under a tree with him years later. We'd been on a painting trip and he was reflecting about his childhood. And he said, um, he said, do you, and he said, let me tell you something, when I was a kid, it was a famous New York uh, Yankees pitcher named Lefty Gomez during the 1930s. He said, I worshiped Lefty Gomez, greatest pitcher at that time in professional baseball. And he said, I'm playing stickball in the streets one day in New York. <clears throat> this Cadillac pulls up. Never seen anything like it. Custom Cadillac. And out comes Lefty Gomez going in to buy a pack of cigarettes in the five and dime. And he said, all the kids just ran over and surrounded the Cadillac. And he said, where do you put the key in the door to turn the lock? was LG in gold, Lefty mm. Gomez. And he said, you know, Ray Kinsler was Ray Kinsler even when he was a kid. Ray Kinsler goes in to the five and dime. There's Lefty Gomez paying for his pack of cigarettes. And he walks up to Lefty Gomez and said, Mr. Gomez, you're my, my greatest hero. I love you. I, I just, I can't wait to watch you play ball sometime in real life. Would you be willing to give me your autograph? This is Kinsler like when he's 10, 1936. And Lefty Gomez said, sure, sure, kid. And the guy that's running the five and dime hands him his pad, you know, like he's where you fill out, you know, the order of hands him the pad and hands him a fountain pen. And Lefty Gomez starts to write his name and it won't work. And he starts shaking it like this to get the ink down. And when he does, it splatters and it goes all over his suit. Oh, no. And he's, he's a look what you've done, kid. You've ruined my suit. And he shoves him out of the way and goes storming out of the, you know, shop and gets in his car. Well, Kinsler's devastated. He's ruined Lefty Gomez's suit. He knows that his hero will never talk to him again. And he just, he said, and he looked at me and he said, never meet your heroes. They'll always disappoint you. And I thought to myself, <laughs> you're wrong. You know, I didn't say it, but I thought you're wrong. You never disappointed me. And he didn't disappoint me that day because he was so gracious. Well, I get home, I send him some photographs of paintings I've done. I sent him the drawing and Jeff, what I'd done, I had done a charcoal drawing of him from a photograph in the inside of his book, 
which by the way, was the size of my little fingernail. And I had worked at a jewelry store part-time and I owned a loop, you know, for looking at diamonds. Mm -hmm. And I would put the loop up to my eye and hold the book and look at the drawing. And then I would draw and I would look in the loop because I didn't have any way of blowing it up and no Xerox machine or anything. And so I did this charcoal of him, sprayed it really well, built a little container to hold it so that it wouldn't get ruined. And I put that in a package. It was made of foam core, little spacers, tissue over it, all this. And I put it in a big envelope. I put another big envelope in there of self-addressed with all the stamps on it and then photos of my work and then a letter that I wrote to him. And I said, Mr. Kinsler, if you would be so kind as to autograph this drawing I did of you, I would be so grateful and enclosed, you know, a, Here's the envelope and the stamps and everything to send back to me. And I did that because I knew that all of his life, he had been sketching people and then he would ask him, would they autograph it? Like he did this with Norman Rockwell and uh, George Bernard Shaw and all these famous people, Howard Chandler Christie. Um, he, he would draw them and then would you sign it? And then he would hang them on his wall in his studio. Um, That's a cool habit. <laughs> Isn't that a cool idea? Yeah. So I was just thinking, uh, maybe he'll kind of remember he used to do this and he'll sign my drawing. Now, here's the other thing that, again, that just God is shining his face on me. So he is, Kenser has been married for many years and divorced in the early 80s. And he went through a period of sadness, you know, and depression. His marriage had failed and, you know, it's just sort of like a tough time. And I mean, that's an understatement, but anyway, it's a tough time. And, um, he is interviewed in 1990, fall of 1992 by a lady named Peggy Chartier from Wyoming, who is um, has a magazine called Inform Art Magazine. And he's in, she's interviewing Ray Kinsler in New York. And he absolutely falls head over heels in love from the moment that he meets her. And she has the same feeling for him. And in February of 1993, he invites her for the first ever weekend with him in New York. Now they've been dating some, you know, long distance. She's come to New York a couple of times, but not to stay for a weekend. And the very day that she walks in the National Arts Club to spend the weekend there at his apartment, he picks up his mail at the front desk and there's this huge envelope that he puts under his arm and he goes onto the elevator with her and he looks at it as she's got her suitcase for the weekend and he says, this is from somebody in Nashville, Tennessee. I don't know anybody in Nashville, Tennessee. What is this thing? And he gets in the apartment and he opens it up. She says she still remembers it vividly. She opens it up and he pulls out my drawing. And he says, oh, gee, that's not bad. You know, pretty good drawing. And he puts it on the table and reads my letter. And then he proceeds to have this incredible weekend with Peggy, who he is now sure he's going to marry. And he does marry later. But anyway, I have decided that if my drawing maybe had come a year before or six months before, and maybe if it had come six months after, it wouldn't have had that extra added benefit of arriving the weekend that he truly changed his life for the good. And so I just felt like that everything was timing. I mean, every piece of this was timing. And uh, because Jeff, I used to see his desk, the letters that he would receive from artists, not in the United States, all over the world. I mean, there would be stacks of them, wow. fan letters. And then when the email was invented, I mean, it was he enjoyed answering them. And in, in, in his later years, he would spend a significant time, amount of time every week sitting answering emails from people all over the world. Um, he enjoyed it. But there was times when he would be overwhelmed with correspondence and simply couldn't do it. He couldn't sit down and write everybody that would write him and people would send him 
drawings, ask him for autographs, you know, send him copies of their books or his book and say, would you autograph this and send it back to me? It was a major issue with, with him trying to satisfy those kind of demands. So I got plucked out of a haystack. I mean, I could have never have met him. I could have never have um, been fortunate enough for him to have seen that, that drawing. And by the way, he did autograph it. He wrote on there uh, to Michael Shane Neal, a strong, well-handled portrait from your delighted victim, Everett Raymond Kinsler. <laughs> That's classic. And the, now, the, the, the photographs, every photograph he would take, he took like a Sharpie and he would mark it up. And like he said, oh, you know, the hand should be, the hand would have been better if you'd put it over here or if you'd have made the arm here and he drew it, you know, sketched it out. And the landscapes, he would say, you should lower the horizon line, move this tree over here. And he sketched it out on the, on the, on this little glossy four by six. And then he, he put a, he did a one page pound typewriter, you know, the old pound typewriter. Yeah. One page pound typewriter critique of every single thing in there. And he signed it in a fountain pen at the bottom. He wrote across the bottom, send me more when you have them. And so for several, three or four times over the next year, I would write him and I would send him a few photographs and he would do the same thing and he would critique them. We were pen pals and he's painting Ronald Reagan at this time. This is the kind of thing he's doing and he's writing this kid from Nashville, Tennessee. And then one day I get a handwritten note from him in my mailbox in 93, late 93, that says, I am dating a gal out West. I'm going to see her and then I'm gonna stop in Montana on the way back and I'm gonna paint with a group of painters and if you would be interested in painting with us, we're going to meet at the Big Timber Hotel on such and such a date. Well, I said, I wrote him back, said, I'll be there. And what happened was it got, it grew. He invited more and more people. It was a couple of people he knew out there and it turned into a little class. He became the instructor. And we, I went up to, I drove to Big Timber, Montana with some friends of mine who drove me there because my car wouldn't make it. I actually rode to Big Timber, Montana with these friends who dropped me off and I walked into the Big Timber Hotel, and there was Ray Kinsler with his wife, Peggy. And he was so much older than the photo that I had in the book. I wasn't quite sure it was him, but sure enough, it was. And he lit up when we met, having just corresponded with him, but he lit up when we met. My friend, my clock there. No worries. Um, and it was the week that changed my life forever. He sort of just took an interest in me. And he used to say, I just took a shine to you. I, I've asked his wife a number of times, Peggy, why do you think Everett plucked me out and, and gave me the attention, the leg up, the knowledge, the information, the time? And she said, he saw a lot of potential and he liked you. He liked your personality. You had a lot in common. We did have an enormous amount in common. And she said, but he liked your drive and your energy. And whenever he told you to try something, you always did it. You always tried it. And he would see you trying. And she said, you know, all I can tell you was it was a time and place thing and it just clicked. And um, so anyway, that was our beginning. That was 30 years ago, uh, nearly. We became closer and closer. And in, he never had any sons, by the way. He had, he had two daughters and, and six granddaughters. I mean, he never had any sons or grandsons. And um, that was an important thing, too, I think. I mean, I kind of became, in a way, a son that he didn't have. He used to call me his art son. That's what Peggy called me, his art, their, arch, their art son. Um, 
they never had any children together. Um, and so 1995, he calls me up one day and he said, um, we would talk on the phone all the time. I and mean, he'd call me all the time. I'd call him and sometimes he would talk for an hour without stopping. And I would just take note. And, you know, I was writing, 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 take notes on things he was telling me about painting and drawing. And, um, he, he called me up and he said, uh, I, have a, I had a former client in, in Minneapolis, in Wyzetta. Uh, it was Wyzetta, Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And he said, I painted his wife years ago, and he's looking for someone to paint his portrait for Cargill Corporation, which was a major, huge, it's the largest privately owned company in the world. And they were calling, of course, Ray Kenser to do the outgoing CEO, Whitney McMillan's portrait. And um, he said, uh, I can't do it. I can't take it on. I've got so much. And, and he, he said, you know, respectfully, it's, he said, I don't, I enjoyed these portraits, but it's another man in a business suit. And I've done hundreds of these. And, uh, you know, he did nearly 3,000 portraits in his career. Commissioned portraits. Wow. 3, wow. Um, that's 3,000 relationships, Jeff. That's 3,000, you know, places he's gone, 3,000 endless stories. And um, so he said, I, I've recommended you. And he said, I, I think they may give you a call. And I said, oh, my gosh, I'm so honored. I, I, if I never got the job, it didn't matter. The fact that he would have enough confidence in me to recommend me. And it was not minutes after the phone call that the phone rang and it was Whitney McMillan and his wife, Betty, on the extension. And when I'm older than you, but when I was younger, people would pick up another phone in the house and they would both be on the telephone and they were both talking to me, you know, on the same line. And uh, they said, uh, well, we, we called Ray Kinsler and he said that you're our guy and we'd like you to come up and paint Whitney's portrait. And I said, oh, well, I'm so flattered and honored. I said, let me get a portfolio together and send to you. And Whitney said, a portfolio? And I said, yes, uh, some pictures of my work. And he said, oh, no, 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 that's not necessary. Right? He said, you're our guy. Just come on up. So <laughs> I, that was insane. So that and would have so been I, my next question is, is how did you, because you've painted a lot of pretty uh, well-known and important people. Um, and so would you say that this was the moment in your career where it started to roll, your career started to roll and you started to get these big name commissions? No, 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 I wouldn't say that was the moment that I got big commissions, but it was the moment that I realized that there was a different life than I had been leading before that. For five years, I had been painting mostly in the city of Nashville and a couple of things outside of town, but not, you know, mostly just a, a local artist. And suddenly I realized that there was the potential for a whole world out there where I might travel and go way beyond my borders of my city and that I could, that could happen, and that there was wealth beyond my wildest imagination. Uh, Mr. and Ms. McMillan, when, when Whitney died recently at 90-something years old, I think his net worth was about $10 billion. <laughs> and I did not, I was at that time maybe making $20,000 a year as a painter, which may be $40,000 a day, I'm guessing. I'm Get my inflation calculator out, but my my Ray Kinsler probably. I mean, by the way, this is not a conversation you could have with Ray Kinsler because he did not talk about money. He did not talk about what you charge. Right. And if you had if you had even broached the subject, he would have been offended. He talked about painting. Period. Um, my guess is that at that time, Ray Kinsler might have been charging fifty or seventy five thousand dollars for a portrait that size, and I was charging five. And so 
I never forget sitting in Whitney's study and he said, oh, we need to, don't I need to get you a deposit check? And I said, oh, well, yes, sir, that would be very nice. And he said, well, let's sit in my study. We'll get this taken care of. And it's like, I'm just going to pull his checkbook out of the drawer and he's at his desk. And he said, so um, uh, tell me what, now what do I owe you? I said, well, the, the, the painting is 5,000. And so um, 40% of that's 2,000. And he looked up and he said, no, wait a minute. No, is 5,000 a deposit or the painting? I said, oh, that's the painting. <laughs> Oh, the man. And he looked at me like with this sort of like in disbelief, you know, and he said, oh, OK, sure. All right. Well, here we are. And he wrote the two thousand dollar check and handed it to me. And I remember thinking to myself. He thought the painting would probably be tens of thousands. He had no idea I was going to be five thousand dollars for the whole thing. Did you wish you had um, charged more? <laughs> well, yeah. And, and no, because Kinsler told me something about fees at one time. Now, this not not a specific fee. But he said to me about fees. He said, "If if you if you're not thinking about the price when you're working, then the price is exactly what it should be." He said, "If you're if you're thinking, oh my goodness, I cannot believe I've charged this much. I'm so what if what if they don't like it? What if it's not good enough?" He said, "That fee is too high." And he said, "If you're thinking to yourself, ah, they're not paying me much for this thing. I mean, this is good enough. You know, your fee is too low." Oh, he that's said, smart. You said, oh, isn't that good? He said, yeah. you should not be thinking about it once you've signed on the dotted line. That means everybody's comfortable with it. And so I've always used that as my guiding principle. If I'm not comfortable with it, then it's not right. You know, if I don't feel good about raising it, then I shouldn't. And if I feel like I'm too expensive, well, doggone it, I've I've started charging too much. I've luckily never had to go down. But um, at the same time, I'm, I'm not opposed to that. And if, if, if economic conditions changed and you needed to go down, you need to go down. Um, but anyhow, uh, we never discussed fees, but, um, that was something that I'll never forget. I'll never forget Whitney looking at me going, there's no way you're just charging me $5,000 for this painting. Yeah. To him, it was, it, it was like going out to lunch, paying you. It was probably. going out to lunch and yeah. they were wonderful. Now, what they did do for me was they gave me a credit credibility because yeah. here I painted the CEO of the most important and largest privately held company in the world. And I had got to do it. And he wrote another important, wealthy businessman in Nashville, Tennessee, named um, Tommy Frist. And Tommy Frist is a billionaire. He's our wealthiest uh, Tennessean. I think he's worth about 20 billion. And Tommy knew Whitney very well. And Whitney wrote them a note after the thing was successful. And I've seen a copy of the note. And um, he said, uh, dear Tommy, call New York for a portrait. They sent me to Nashville instead. No need for you to travel. The artist's name is Michael Shane Neal. Here's his phone number. And that was mm -hmm. it. And um, Tommy Frisk kept that note. And a couple of years later, I ran into him. And he, uh, the, without getting into the story, it led to me painting a number of portraits for him and his family and his brother, who became majority leader of the United States Senate, Bill Frisk, who later commissioned me to paint his official portrait for the Capitol. And wow. just actually, last week, Frisk new projects for him and his family. And Tommy Frist, I'm working on my third uh, portrait that he just commissioned for me recently. The Frist family, for the last 25 years, I have almost not been without some piece of work, some commission for them, at least every couple of years. It's just been incredible. Wow, that's that quite all a relationship. Goes back to, yeah, that goes back to that credibility of um, having painted Whitney McMillan. So that that's did great. play into more, you know, more commissions. So tell me about how you got a relationship with the Portrait Society. So um, 
most of my life um, is starts either this way. I will say, I painted a guy, or I painted a woman, or I painted. And the other thing that most of my life goes back to, Ray Kinsler, 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 Kinsler. <laughs> so Kinsler calls me up one day, and he said, um, he said, there's a there's a new organization for me. And he said, I don't like the name. I, I really wish it wasn't Portrait Society because I don't want it to just be portrait. I'd like it to be artists that paint people. I don't want it to just be portrait painters. But he said, that's not important. The most important thing is there's a new group being formed and I am going to join their board. Dan Green's on board. Bert Silverman's on board. Bill Draper's on board. And he said, it's, there's an organization called the American Society of Portrait Artists. And he said, um, Gordon Wetmore and Ed Jonas are leaving that organization, starting their own, and they're starting a non-for-profit, a not-for-profit organization called the Portrait Society of America. And he said it has all the right, um, it, it checks all the right boxes, and I'm going to be a part of it, and I want you to join. And I said, oh, gee, I said, ever, you know, I've never been a real fan of Asapa. And, I, and he said, I know, this is not going to be the same. It's not going to be the same. And so um, I, I drug my feet, like for the first year that they started, I didn't go to the first conference, the first conference in 1998, I didn't go to because I just thought, I don't think it's, it's going to be like that other organization. They're going to be trying to ups, upsell everything, you know, and anyhow, Everett kept on me saying, have you joined yet? Join yet? And I finally said, yes, I've joined. I joined. I joined, you know, right after the organization had been a part of year. And then that next year, second year, I decided to enter the competition. And I entered the competition and I got in the finals with a painting. And I went to Chicago, Illinois for the finals. And that was my first conference. And it was just life changing. You know, it was incredible. These speakers, these demonstrations, Spencer demonstrated, Dan Green demonstrated, on and on. And, and um, I met all these people that I just felt like, gosh, this is great. You're meeting all these artists. It's fantastic. And stay in touch with them. And we'd call each other. There was no email at that. Well, it was just beginning, but we really weren't emailing much. And uh, I ended up winning third place um, with my piece. And I was thrilled. I was out of my, I was just thrilled. And um, that next year, I decided I was going to really try to enter and get in again. And I, you know, I was sort of ambitious. I thought, maybe I can win. And so I did a painting. I entered it. I got in the finals again. I went to the, I forget what year, I mean, I forget what, where they were. It was 2001. And um, I won the dang thing. I, wow. I got the grand prize. And um, it, it, now that is a moment that changed my life completely, just like the Ray Kinsler thing. That's a moment that changed my life completely because the internet was kind of going enough at that point that there was lots of news about it. It was lots of stories. I was interviewed a lot. It was online information. And I got a phone call from a lady who said she was the curator of the United States Senate at the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., and that she had read that I'd won this prize. And she wanted to know if I would submit a portfolio to them that they occasionally commission portraits. That was all because of the press that went with the Port Society. And that led to numerous commissions uh, with the U.S. Capitol and the Senate over a number of years. In fact, uh, at one point, it was at least it was at least stated that I had I was had more had four paintings at the U.S. Senate, and there was no other living artist that had more commissions that they had done at the U.S. Senate. And I was the youngest portrait painter they had ever hired. I was 32 when they first hired me, and no other artist had been hired that young. Um, and, and so anyway, all that to tell you that that 
was a huge launching of my, at that point I had been painting for 10, 11 years, making a comfortable living, uh, happy, but suddenly I had these more notable things coming my way and another thing happened. And that was, I was working with Portraits Inc. or at that time it's called Portrait Brokers of America. I was working with another one called Portrait South, a few other agencies I was working with. And suddenly they had this wonderful thing to market, you know, hey, this guy just won the grand prize at the Portrait Society of America. It's a big competition. And so you better get him now because the price is going up. And there was an agent, one particular agent, um, whose name Adele Hudgens worked for Portrait Brokers in Dallas, Texas, in Highland Park. And in those days, Jeff, you would just get an envelope in the mail that was a yellow sheet. You would unfold it, and it would be the details of a commission. It would be, I'm going to... Dallas, Texas to paint Mrs. So-and-so and the agent is Adele Hudgens. And um, here's the phone number of Adele, be in touch with her and set up your sitting schedule. That's so well, different. Well, I got an It's so different now. So I got an envelope in the mail one day, a regular standard envelope, and it was so thick that there was tape on the envelope. And when I opened it up, it was nine yellow sheets of paper from Adele Hudgens. She had sold nine portraits in her neighborhood alone that first, say, month after I had won the Portrait Society Grand Prize. You're kidding me. I went and stayed a week with her, and we set up sitting schedules. She would just drive me from one house to another. I would sketch the person. I would photograph the kids, whatever. I stayed in her house, stayed for seven days. I got all of those nine started. And she she ended up selling probably 30 portraits in her neighborhood that next year. From you, and, for and, you. Or just me. No just me. kidding. And other agents were doing the same thing. That's incredible. Not nine, but they were selling one, two, three. And they were coming at me so fast that I was on the road constantly. That year, I forget, but it's a record. I forget that I've got it in my diary. It was like 150 days I stayed on the road that next year. And I looked up one day, a couple of years into this, I've, I'm, I've got both, I'm painting both hands as fast as I can paint. So many kids and so many little girls in smock dresses and gardens with their little toes. I, it was just, it was just crazy. And I was burning out. I mean, I was just going, I was, here's my schedule. I would get up in the morning at about 7.30 and that sounds late, but I'll tell you why. I get up about 7.30 in the morning. I would have my breakfast. I would go out. I would start painting. I'd come in for lunch. I'd go out and go paint. I'd come in for dinner. I'd go out and go paint. And then I would go out to clean my palette, you know, like at about nine o'clock. And then I would not clean my palette. And I would paint until two, three, sometimes four in the morning. Many, many times I would go and pick up my newspaper in the driveway and go and lie down for three or four hours and then I'd get up and go at it again. I did that till a point where I didn't know what my name was and I lost a bunch of weight and I was sending paintings out barely dry. And I kind of almost had a meltdown. And so I called Ray Kinster one day and I said, I said, Everett, I called him Everett. I said, Everett, I'm in a pickle. I, I, I've got too much of a good thing. And he said, all right, well, wait a minute. As he always did. All right, start over. Tell me this from the beginning, you know? And so I started telling him what had happened, you know, a year and a half ago, agents started selling. I started getting more and more work, more and more press, which is leading to more and more work. And I said, I have so many commissions. I don't know what to do. And he said, well, how many commissions do you have? And I am not even going to tell you because I've never told anybody. But I told Ray Kinsler how many I had. And he said, it was like this. It was like he picked up the phone and said, 
Hello, I'm sorry, I, I lost you for a moment. I thought you said, and he Nate told me the number. And I said, that's what I, that's how many I have. And he said, that's not possible. I've been doing this for 49 years. I've never heard of any artist with that many commissions anywhere, anytime. And I said, well, I do, I have that many commissions. And he said, why did you take that many commissions? That's what I, I was wondering. Was, <laughs> was I didn't know what was happening. I, well, first off, I can, I, I can, I answer you, I'll answer you the same way I answered him. I said, first off, I didn't know what was happening. And secondly, this is what I do. I mean, I've been working painting portraits for, you know, a dozen years and there's been plenty of times I had no work. And suddenly I've got all this work. I'm not turning down anything, you know, and by the way, I'm selling my paintings at that time for like 3000 for a head, six or 7,000 for a full figure. So you take a 40% commission out of this, you know, Ouch. I'm not making that much. Yeah. And um, he said, well, well, all right. Well, first off, very first thing is that you're not taking any commissions at all. And, and for at least the next three or four years, you're not taking a thing. And I said, okay, I'm writing these things down, you know? And he said, uh, the next thing you're going to do, and he said, you're going to forgive me for this. We've never discussed this in your entire career. We've never discussed this, but you're please going to forgive me. But I think we've got to broach the subject of your fees. That's and what I said, was wondering. Yeah. <laughs> you're too he cheap. Said, you're he said, if you're not comfortable telling me, I don't want you to. But he said, if you're comfortable, I would love, I would like to be of help in this regard. And so would you, would you mind telling me? I said, no, everybody, I'll tell you. So I told him my fees and he paused and he said, okay, you're going to triple those fees tomorrow. And I said, oh my gosh, I may never get another job again. He said, you don't need another job again. <laughs> you know, he's laughing on the phone. He said, no, he said, you're not going to, you got, you've got to increase your fees. You can't keep working like this. And I'll tell you another reason that I had my meltdown, Jeff, is I had three kids that I was working on from three different cities, all little girls. And they, this is a true story. They all had double names and they all had Anna something. It was Anna, Kate, Anna. <laughs> and I, the reason I had my meltdown, I did not know who, I didn't know where they went. I didn't know what Anna went where. I didn't know what city I had photographed the kid in. I would have had to go and look it up. I had lost that much touch in touch with who I was working with. Wow. Because I was painting just people. It, it was no longer, I was just painting, I was just painting shapes. It was no longer a person because I, it was too much of a good thing. So um, he said, if you get a king, queen, or president, you're going to stop what you're doing and get it. But beyond that, you're not taking any work until you get through this. It took me four years four years to get it all done. And I got it all done. And I did occasionally take a project of really of note, you know, of note, a, a U.S. Senator or a really a big company that, you know, but if it was um, calling for little, you know, Jane or little John in um, Houston, Texas, I said, I'm so sorry, I can't take it on right now. Yeah. Um, and near the end of those four years, I started to see the light. And uh, I began to take more projects, but what other also happened was, you know, I would increase the fees again, you know, in that three or four years and a little again, a little again, a little more each time. And uh, yeah, Marshall Bolden said to me once, every time I raise my fees, I have more work than I had before. And he said, I've never, I've never been without work every time I raise my fees. And then, you know, I told you about Tommy Frist, the billionaire who's been so wonderful to me all my career. Mm -hmm. I was at his house one day, he was commissioning three portraits and he said, I don't think you're charging enough for your work. He said, don't let the fact that you're from Nashville hold you back. You've got a great resume. You got great work. He said, you know, you need to raise your fees. And his wife came to see me at my studio one day and she's sitting there 
and she's she's sitting at a table and looks down at an oriental rug that's sitting under my table. And she looked at me and she said, Tommy, her husband, Tommy told me you're not charging enough for your work. Then yeah, he told me that. I said, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna listen to him. She said, You should listen to him. He's a pretty good businessman. I mean, this guy made billions of dollars. <laughs> and uh, she she looks at this rug and she looked up. Now this is a real this is a very important moment in my life. She looks at the rug and she looks up and she said, Do you know how I know that's a nice rug? And I said, um, how? And she said, Because a trusted salesman told me it was a nice rug and the price reflected it. I don't know anything about rugs. But if a trusted salesman tells me that and the price reflected, then I know I'm buying a nice rug. Isn't that said, a trip? So don't. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? So I thought to myself, okay, Tommy said my resume supports it. I'm going to tell somebody that's what it's worth. And he wasn't wrong. And, uh, and, and you know, he's been, it's advice that changed my life. And that was 15 years ago. Um, that's priceless. So anyway, it's really good. And Kinsler and I never had these discussions. We never sat and talked about it. After That was the only time ever in my 30 years of being his student and his friend that we ever talked about price. And um, so anyhow. Um, so let me ask um, you, if you don't mind, let me ask you about your personal life a little bit. So you have two daughters. Yeah. And one of them I've met, her name's Maddie, and she's quite the artist. Yeah. So tell me about what it was like being a father as an artist all these years, not, not just in raising kids and balancing your career, but I do want to hear about that. But also one of these is one of these girls is going to be an artist. And I, I understand works in your studio with you. Tell me a little yeah, bit about those story. things. Yeah. So, um, I decided early on, as I said, Ray Kinsler and I have a lot in common. But one thing we didn't have in common was our approach to our families. And um, Kensler loved his family, loved his daughters, but they would never have been allowed in the studio when he was working. They would have never had an, it would never have been an open door. The door was locked when he was in the studio. That was his domain. And even Mrs. Kensler didn't dare come in without knocking. And if she felt it was the wrong time, she, she always said, I still rang the phone in the studio to see if he would answer it and if it was okay for him to bring, it, bring him a cup of coffee. She just didn't interrupt him. Mm. That was the way he approached his work if he was working alone or with a client. I, early on, was a different personality and I adored my children and also, but I wanted to spend a lot of time with them and I wanted to be with them as much as I could. And so I was a very hands-on dad. Uh, I, you know, I changed diapers, I fed, fed them bottles, I gave them baths. And early on, I always had an open door. There was a moment when Maddie was about three, that I, the open door policy, this particular period of time, maybe it was a week or two, was just not working because I was stressed and I had a very difficult project I was working on, I, I, I remember. And Lily, I'm sorry, Maddie was coming a lot to the studio and it was a distraction. And um, I, one day I locked the door and I had a door that had glass and you could see through it. And Maddie, little sweet little Maddie came <laughs> down and tried to come in and I'm like, no, you can't come in. And I dropped the shades and I close, you know, close it where she couldn't see. And she's knocking <laughs> and I'm trying to turn the music up. And then I go over to my easel and I, it's hard to describe, but I had a studio that there was a way for her to be able to see in a window. And the window, the, the, the studio went down. You walked down some steps into the studio. So these windows were sort of ground level. And she walked around and she's standing at my north windows <laughs> that started ground level and went up. 
and she puts her hands on the glass and she puts her face against it and she's crying so much that she's <laughs> wet and the tears are all over the window. And I looked up and I went, oh my God, what am I doing? And I put down the brushes and I went over on the door and I grabbed her and I took her in the studio. And I'll never forget that they were, the, the song on the radio was, um, was that, oh, it's that sad song about, um, it, it's a, a wonderful world. You know that song about, it's a wonderful world. Yeah, with, yeah, uh, yeah. I couldn't sing and it, I but thought, yeah. I thought, oh my gosh, it was like a knife in my heart. And I realized at that moment as I was holding her listening, it's a wonderful world. I thought painting is the most important thing in the world to me, but not more important than my kids. You know, not more important with my than my relationship with God. And and those were two things that Everett didn't have in his life. So um, I realized at that moment that I was always going to, that my kids were going to always come first. And that that was not true of my mentor, that his work was always going to come first. And, yeah. you know, anybody in his life had to know that that was the case or you couldn't be in his life. And Peggy always said, I knew that art came first. That was okay with me. I was I was comfortable with that relationship and being that way. And do you know that Everett was still talking about this until two days before he died, about the sacrifice that I had made being as involved with my children? And hmm. he said, but look at he said, so he's, I was with him all day on Friday before he died on Sunday. And he said to me, you've paid a price with your work, but look at what you have gained. You have gained this incredible, wonderful relationship with your children. And he said, and you have the most amazing young artist on your hands, which had, had I don't know if his girl shown the kind of interest, would he have opened the door? I don't know, but I'm glad I did because what it's done for Maddie in particular is that Maddie has, through osmosis and through a great deal of interest and drive, decided that she too wants to be an artist. And she's born an artist. I don't think you decide you become an artist. I think you're born an artist, but she decided that she wants to pursue this. And you know how hard it is and how much work you have to put into it. But she was there at my easel all my all of her life. She was there when we were with Kinsler, when we were traveling. I've taken her to many Portrait Society conferences, as you've seen her when she was much younger than she is now. And um, Maddie has all of the characteristics that you dream for in an intern or a student or a protege. She has an incredible amount of God-given gift, but she has twice that in work, work ethic. Mm. Uh, she works at it every day. She fills her sketchbooks. She reads voraciously. She is anxious to watch anybody paint, draw. Uh, she keeps very detailed uh, copious notes, index cards full of information. Wow. And her 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 daily, when she wakes up in the morning, she's thinking about how can I get better at this? How can I grow? And it's what Kenser always said is, you know, if you are not, if as an artist, you must be thinking about, well, what's the next painting? How can I get, how can I get better? He went to a show when he was 89 years old, a sergeant show with the Met. He said, I'm going to spend the whole day here. And he starts looking at paintings. And after five or six paintings, he's like, oh, my gosh, I can't stay here all day. i got to get back to the studio. I don't have enough time. I've got so much work I've got to do. I've got so much I've got to I've got so I've got to grow. I've got to I've got to learn. And he was always driven to be better. Um, and, and Maddie's driven to be better. So she has all the things that you want. Now, my youngest daughter, very gifted as an artist, draws. Now, Maddie will tell you, draws naturally better than Maddie did at the same age. But right now, it's that's what older sister does. So she's not taking it seriously yet. 
she's taking her first art class in 10th grade high school next year. And we've got our fingers crossed that, a, <laughs> you know, a spark. Yeah. Because I'm telling you, the kid is so good. And she's 15, um, right? Maddie's 20. She's 15 and 20. Yeah. That's right. And uh, so, um, anyway, uh, yeah, that's, you know, just truly amazing children. And, uh, uh, I, I look forward to seeing where Maddie goes. I mean, she will no doubt she's going to go and go and go places. And as Ken, so Kenser said to me, she, he's lying in bed. We didn't know it was our last time together and we didn't know that he wouldn't pull out of this. Um, I mean, we were knew it was serious, but we were hoping he would pull through. And um, I, uh, he had not seen anybody while he was in the hospital. He worked until three weeks before he died. And he had told his wife, Peggy, he said, um, I don't want, he, he had let his daughter, one of his daughters came to see him. His other daughter was in France. She wasn't able to get here in time to see him. Uh, but his wife had been there and that was it. No visitors, no visitors. I don't want people to see me this way. It wasn't that he didn't want to see people that. But Peggy texted me on um, Thursday before he died on Sunday and said, I don't mean to alarm you, but um, his kidneys are not working properly. And of course, I've been around long enough to know that that's a real bad sign at 92 and a half. That's a bad sign. And so my sister, who's been working with me for years, said, you better get on a plane and go. And I did. And I just showed up at the hospital and went. Yeah. And um, we had the most special. I have to say what he did. I'm walking in, he has a nurse standing there. It's ICU, Peggy's not there. I walk in and she says, oh, you have a visitor. And he said, who? And he looks over like not too friendly. He looks over and I start walking to him and he, I come into focus and he said, oh my God, oh my God. Me boy, me boy, come over here, come over here. And I walk over, go over and he's got all these pipes and wires and he reaches up and he pulls me over and he kisses me on the lips. I mean, right on the <laughs> lips, a big kiss. <laughs> And he starts pushing stuff off his bed, all the wires. And he says, sit on the bed, me boy, sit on the bed. And he looks up at the nurse and he says, it's not sexual. <laughs> That's so going, I'm not so sure after that kiss. Uh, we talked for hours and endlessly. And one of the things he said that day was, he said, what are we going to do about Maddie? What are we going to do about Maddie? And I said, I don't know. Ever. I, I mean, we've looked at this program and that program. He said, what are you talking about? I said, school. And he said, I'm not talking about school. I'm talking about she's going to get all the commissions. What are we going to do? We're not going to have any work. You know, <laughs> he looked at me and he said, you know, someday there'll be books written about her. And it's going to say her father and grandfather were artists, too. And he said, we shall go nameless. We'll just be father and grandfather. I mean, he just thought she had such a gift. And we I look forward to watching her continue to development. I'm sorry, I went on and on. No, that's great. Yeah. I've always thought, you know, I work so hard to make a beautiful painting. Sometimes years a painting takes, and I'm, I'm my best creations took me a couple minutes. Yeah. <laughs> that was years in the making. No, no, but it, years raising them, but my kids are my greatest creations. So, yeah. no, talk, talk now, all you'd Maddie like. Will always be, Maddie will always be, and Lily too, my greatest works. I went up to look at a painting she was working at yet, on yesterday, and I just thought to myself, "Oh my gosh, it's so good." Yeah, she's, she's very good. Your, your kids too. Yeah, yeah. I wow. saw you flashed up the website for a minute. Yeah, I kind of so goofed cool. up there for a minute. Um, but what I want to do is I want to we're we're getting close to the end of ninety minutes, but I want to have you show me a couple of paintings here i mean i want you i mean i'll i can look at some that i like but i'd rather if there's any in particular that you would like to talk about 
maybe there's an experience behind them you know, or they're particularly meaningful. Is, yeah. Um, this is one of those things that great. there could be any number of them. Um, let me pick, let me pick. So where should I go? Let me pick, go to uh, men's portraits. Uh, so go to portraits. All okay, right. We'll go, go to, to portraits, portraits and the then men. Okay. And then go to, let's see, maybe and then go down to, go back to portraits and go to, um, Go to, I think, is it business? Try business. Let's see if this okay. is where it is. There's one that's really something. One thing I want to point okay. out for those this who aren't right. watching or who aren't, yeah, who aren't watching this on YouTube is how prolific you are. I mean, there are so many oh, portraits. Well, I've done six, a little over 600 since 1990. So there's probably like maybe, is there 50 on the website? So I'm leaving out 550. Um, wow. So, so, okay. So which Jim one on this page? Yeah. James O. Bass, you see that right there, oh, James right O. Bass. Yeah, yep. Okay, why does that? Why did I pull that out? Because it's a, it's fun, but it's brief. That was done with the Zorn palette. I had never tried that before, and I painted that with the Zorn palette. There's not one ounce of blue in it. It's got um, ivory black, uh, cad red, and uh, yellow ochre, and mm -hmm. white. And his eyes look blue, but it's not. You know, it's all related to color harmony. And why was it also memorable? He was 107 years old when he posed for this painting. No kidding. Uh, click on the painting. I think it'll go to another page. See if you can do that. I think it goes to another page. Does it? Or no, I'll scroll it down. Oh, okay. Are there images? Ah. Okay, here we are. The charcoal I did of him uh, as a study for the painting. This from life? And then, yeah. It's beautiful. And then below, thank you. On a piece of newsprint. Isn't that hideous? It'll be yellow. Oh, um, no. What a waste. That's so sad. Yeah. Um, and then below, let's see, keep scrolling. This is the, this is the unveiling. Okay. Uh, is there any more images okay. of the studio? No, shoot. No. Well, anyway, no. he came to my studio. I have to get Becca to put a studio image in there. He is 107 years old. He's sitting there and he says to me, he had this beautiful old Southern accent, which we call the Nashville accent. It was very distinctive and it's gone now. My grandpa, my grandparents spoke like this, but he said, uh, it's Mr. Neal. He said, uh, I want you to tell me how everything here works. Why, why do you have those big windows there? You know, why do you have that? <laughs> what are those colors for? And, you know, it just, it, and I thought, this is why the guy's 107, because he's so curious. Mm -hmm. But he lived to be 105, and I've never forgotten that. But that Zorn palette was an experiment for me, and painting him was unbelievable. And it's there's one, gorgeous. maybe one other. Go to institutional portraits. This is an older one. Um, I think it's institutional, yeah. And scroll down. Let's see. Do, 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 do. There it is. All right. Ambassador Paul Nitza. Um, red robes. That's oh, an older look one. Look at that red. I keep that on there because it's probably now 15 or 18 years old, but I keep it on there because of who he was. He was an advisor to eight U.S. presidents, born in 1907. And if I, is there a book that you, no one would find unless they find it on Amazon, I would encourage, I mean, uh, eBay, I'd encourage you to find it. It's called From Hiroshima to Glasnost. And he was a man that I painted when he was 95 years old for Johns Hopkins. And then I painted him again when he was 97 for a, for a Navy ship. No kidding. But his life is unbelievable. He is like, he was like um, Forrest Gump. He's in the room at every important important American 
historical event from 1942 until he retired under Ronald Reagan in the late 1980s. And the stories that he told me are unbelievable. But he was uh, everything from strategic bombing planner against Japan during World War II to the man that was the lead negotiator with the Russians when we, we reduced those small arms with, with the Soviet Union. And the last thing I want to say about, it, about him was I'm painting him one day. I'm working on a, this portrait from life in his home. And he says to me, I asked him, I said, who was your favorite president that you worked for? And he said, uh, Harry Truman. And I said, why? And he said, because whatever President Truman told you, you could take it to the bank. And he was the same person to you or to someone on the street. He was never, he was always the same person. And I, you know, it's just little, there's more little pearls like that. I mean, there's stories I can tell you that he told me, but this is why we love what we do. I know it's why you love what you do. I am not only getting to paint, for my living and people are asking me to do this, but I am getting to meet the most interesting people and you get to know them on a level that nobody else really does other than their intimate family. And I might argue that we get to know them in ways that they don't because we are painting them and constructing them from the ground up on a piece of white canvas. And I just think that I actually joked with Mr. Nitz. I said, I know you better than know yourself. And he said, young man, I've been shaving this face for over 80 years, you know? <laughs> but anyway, it's just um So what would you I, choose as your most um how do I put this? Of all of your portraits, which one is most personal to you that you have on your website at least that we can see? My most personal. Well, um hmm. you know, I've got a little one on there of Maddie, I think, which you scroll up there if that's children. Yeah. Um scroll, scroll down. Keep going. That's Lily Kate. That little drawing is of that's my youngest daughter. Which one? She was Lily a baby. Kate. Lily oh, Kate. Oh, that is gorgeous. Thank you. That's so You're nice, Jeff. Thank incredible you. draftsman. Yeah, that's very kind of you. That's um, gorgeous. Again, the other one is um, Maddie when she's about four, and then an oval. I think you may have seen that right below her. Okay. Those are very personal. Um, back to that one. Um, yeah, right that there, one. See that oval? Yeah. That's Maddie. Oh my God. Yeah, when she's so, four. Yeah, I kind of figured it might be your kids because that's how I feel. Okay. Now that's something that's interesting too. That is with a palette I'd never used before. Dawn Whitelaw, I know, um, I forget who it was, but some friend of mine had gone to study with Dan Gerhardt's, great yeah. painter. Dan used a palette totally different than mine, and she gave me the palette, and I went and bought all the colors. And I did this painting of Maddie with Dan Gerhardt's palette of colors. And it, when, it, when I finished, Dawn Whitelaw looked at it and said, well, that's, that's, that supports something that I know about teaching color. And I said, what's that? And she said, you've got the exact same colors you do with your, with a different palette. You see the world yeah. in a certain way. Well, that's what and I was going to ask you. you. I was actually thinking you were yeah. going to tell me you had a different painting. And I was thinking, how is that possible? I mean, it's, everything's just red, yellow, and blue. What makes a difference? What your palette is. You know, well, he had thalos that I'd never used before. Yeah. And, you know, things like that. It was, you know, rose matter. I never used rose matter. Right. But anyway, I, I think ultimately I sort of see color a certain way and I kind of mix it a certain way. Right. Um, but I, I've always experimented like that. I always find it fun. I go back to the same thing. I work on a pretty limited palette, 10 colors or so. It's based on John Singer Sargent's palette. And it's literally based on Sargent's palette, which Kinsler, one of you know, Kinsler owned one of Sargent's palettes, one of his physical wooden palettes, kidney shaped palettes. There are four are so out there they're all uh in they're all either on loan in public uh, collection or owned by public institutions 
But there's this one palette that's always floated around from artist to artist that belonged to Sargent and Kenser got it. It was given to Kenser 40 years ago and he gave it to me six months before he died. And so I've got it now and I can look at it and see where the stains of the paint were and the way they were arranged. And it's about 10 colors or so. No kidding. Boy, that, was, that was the that's a treasure. That's a treasure. That's the basis of Sargent's palette, but he had 50 others that he would supplement with. Now that painting of Kenser of obviously is extremely personal. And that's, that's, that's a painting with love. And that was done, that was started at the Portrait Society of America portrait, annual portrait conference, the art of the portrait about 2013 or 2014. And when he sat on stage for three hours with, he was mic'd and I started it there. And then I photographed him on stage that day. And then I went back, worked on it from photos. And then I got with him in Connecticut that, that summer with the painting, worked on it from life one more time. And then um, I ended up keeping it as a sample. And then when he passed away in 2019, I decided that I wanted to donate it to the Players Club in New York, which was his favorite club he was a member of in Gramercy Park. And they've named a room for him. He has a, they have a large collection of his work. And the room is called the Everett Raymond Kenser uh, Room. And when you go in, it's full of Ray Kenser paintings everywhere. And there also is a copy of a sergeant there that used to be over the fireplace. Wow. And then my painting is at the end of, of the wall as you walk in. So you're greeted by him every time you enter that room. And That's he great. liked it, which meant a lot to me. And, you know, um, he was very supportive of it. So was that hard for you to part with this? I mean, I would find that difficult to give up. You know, I, you know, I, funny you say that. I think that that that's why it's in the right place. Yeah. Because I actually am thrilled to go and visit it and see it there and to know that it brings a lot of people a lot of joy there. And I guess if it had been in the wrong place, I would really miss having it. Yeah. But I, it felt so right that I, I don't, I don't. I've got a copy of, we've got a Giclée copy of it. Okay. Uh, if you make a nice contribution to the Portrait Society of America, they send you a copy of it. So, yeah, wow, that's, well, that's beautiful. There, so I'd love for you to support the society. That's beautiful. Um, uh, well, thank you very much. So I want to just ask one final question. You've given a lot of advice, whether you realize it or not. I mean, a few of the things that I took away from this. Um, one is when you talked about your prices, is that when you're too busy, you're too cheap. You talked about how you, you would have you would have starved if you didn't save money. I know a lot of artists could learn from that. Um, I think and I, I didn't learned... have a lot of money to save, by the way. No, I just made it. Made but you it ate work. cereal. Yeah, you ate cereal. I ate cereal. I ate cereal. Right, right. Um, and then, um, and then one thing I learned, sort of indirectly, you never actually said this, was just how valuable the connections you make are into your career. Huge. Um, what Huge. other piece of advice, if there was anything else you could add to those things, um, for artists yeah. that are wanting to emulate. Uh, yes. The wonderful yes. career that you've been blessed with. What piece of advice uh, would you offer? Okay. First off, focus on the work more than anything else. So focus on getting better as a painter. That's number one. Being better as an artist is your ticket to being able to survive as an artist. So the better you are, the more opportunities will come. That's number one. Number two, they, you, you, you can't really work as a portrait painter and hide yourself in a basement somewhere and, you know, slide the paintings under the door. You've got to meet people. You've got to share what you're doing. So find ways to share. And that can be both the internet, that can be showing your work in, in competitions. It can be exhibiting non-portrait work and throw in a portrait or two in a gallery. 
And it's very important that you're not just painting people, but painting other things because you grow as an artist. But um, I also never thought in a million years that I would speak uh, in front of people. But I have told anybody that is interested in listening that I'll be happy to speak at your business club, your arts club, your, your ladies club, your country club. And I am looking for opportunities to stand up and tell people about why I am excited about painting people. And it can take the form of sharing mostly historical artists if you want, share why they're interested in maybe going to the next museum and seeing this particular artist. And then you can wrap in a little of what you're doing at the end to say, you know, look, I'm no John Singer Sargent, but this is what I'm trying to do. Here's a few of my work paintings. Um, the other thing that I feel is so important, and that is to, back to the business side, and that is to really watch the bottom line and be really cautious about how you're living and not living beyond your means. And that may mean, I started, my first studio was in my parents' garage. And then when I had, a, you know, I graduated school and I had, a, I felt like I had enough work to at least last for a few months of rent, I rent that studio. But I rented for 14 years and I saved and saved and saved. And then after 14 years, I took that money and I built a studio behind my house and it was paid for the day that I walked through the door because I paid cash for it as they were building it from my savings, from my studio fund. It took me 14 years to do that. I've had at least maybe five or six young artists have come to me about ready to go borrow money to build a studio. And I, have, I think I've talked them all out of it. I hope I talked them all out of it. So that's important. Don't live beyond your means. And that means that you may start extremely humbly and work, you know, if you, a lot of I know everybody knows that I love clothes and I love to dress in fun suits and I, I love nice clothes. But there were years, and I mean years, where my father gave me his hand-me-down business sh shirts and the collar was ruined on them, you know, where he wore them every day. And I would take the collar and take a Zacto blade and I cut the collar off and wore it as a band collar, you know, with no 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 uh, collar on it. And it became a thing. Like people said, why do you wear these band collar shirts? They didn't know I was cutting the collars off of my dad's shirts. I did that for years um, before I could really buy a shirt. So I just think that you can't underestimate how important it is to live below what you really think that you can afford to do for a number of years until you've saved some money. Because there will be stormy days. There was another one that happened to me in 2020. Um, I had a great year in 2019. I had enough work that led me into 2020, but I couldn't get to anybody and nobody could come to me. And I suddenly out of these paintings that were stuck, I had worked from photos as far as I could. I, I felt like I couldn't finish them until I had a life sitting again or two. And I was just stuck. And so from March until August, I delivered nothing. And then suddenly I realized, wait a minute, my gosh, I'm not generating any income. I can't keep doing this. I was living off of my savings. And so, um, I had, a, I had a couple of projects in, in New York City that one doctor had written me a couple of times say, hey, I can do socially distant sitting, you know, you can wrap up my project. And so I risked it all and got on an airplane in August. I flew to New York City with my, in hand, my test in hand that said, uh, you know, you don't have COVID. And I go there and um, I end up seeing my client a few days later. We did a socially distant sitting, it went great. I finished up the project. And then I submitted a con I submitted a bill. And I, from that point on, I patched together sittings the best I could. I actually sent a portrait to an institution in Chicago 
without another single sitting after my first one, all the rest of it was photos. And that was the first time I had done that other than a posthumous portrait. That was the first time I had done that maybe since I was in college. Hmm. And I felt so uncomfortable doing it because I had not seen my client again. But my point in that is saying, if I had not had my rainy day fund, I would have never dreamed there would have been a pandemic that would have caused me to suddenly not have monthly income coming in. And I just say, you've got to put it minimum, put a minimum aside of 10% of everything you earn, a minimum. And I would feel better if you put 20% aside. That means you're sacrificing. That means you're not going to dinner out as much as you want, or you're not getting Starbucks coffee as often as you like, et cetera. But you will thank you will thank me later if you put aside 10 to 20% of every painting you sell into a savings account. Um, so anyway, those are a few things that I've learned along the way that I know have made a difference in my life. And the other I think I would say is to find um, people that you trust, build yourself a small support group of people that you can go to and say, what do you think about this piece? What do you think about this problem I'm having with this technical problem with the hand or whatever? And then also someone you can go to to say, I don't know what to do next with this person. Um, and uh, it could be that, you know, if you enter portrait painting as a profession, it is not just about painting the pictures. It is also about the relationship with the client, sometimes the re relationship with the gallery or the agency. And sometimes there are challenges. A client likes what you're doing and then suddenly they don't. They've decided they're unhappy with it. Uh, an agent is pressing you to get it done. They're thinking you're taking too long. Um, you've, you've bumped up against a deadline for an unveiling. You're not happy with the painting. And you're looking for people that can help you through that. And I think it's so important that you develop that kind of support system with artists you trust. And then a person that's a non-artist that knows enough about what you're doing in your career that you can go to. That has been for me uh, a few painters and also Ray Kenser and also my father. And I've recently lost both Ray Kenser and my father within a year and a half of each other. Oh, I'm sorry. So, well, you know, now, and you know, here I'm 53. Now I am getting my footing. You know, I'm trying to establish a, a new sort of sense of, well, who are these people in my life and who can I turn to for that kind of support system? But I hear them. I hear Ray Kenser in my head every day. I hear my dad in my head when I'm thinking about something. And, um, and as I'm designing this new studio that I'm building, I, I, I am now in Ray Kinster's studio in New York, which is just an unbelievable thing that's happened. And I've taken over from his teacher, Frank Dumont, was there 45, nearly 50 years. Ray Kinster was there 70 years. I'm now the third painter since 1906 in the space. And I spent a third of my year in New York last year. So I've reduced my footprint in Nashville. I just sold my big house. And my studio that I built and designed that is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, leaving that studio. And I'm building a new studio that'll be equivalent, but smaller, so that I've got less to take care of here. And I'm going to continue to go back and forth between Nashville and New York, and I hope for the rest of my career. Um, so I'm in an, even though I've had a lot of big changes in my life, um, I, I, it's also, there's uh, excitement about the future. And um, because of the incredible... Uh, incredible place that they have, this foundation that they created for me, uh, I feel very optimistic about the future and excited about the future. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, I, as you were talking about your father passing and Raymond Kinsler passing, I was thinking, it feels to me like they've 
passed on the baton to you because I don't know if you realize the influence you have, at least, I mean, even just through the Portrait Society of America, um, and then the influence you obviously have to your daughter, Maddie, which I think is probably a similar relationship to, or, or probably much stronger, but even, even stronger than, but to what you had with Raymond, um, it's, uh, I think it's a cool thing. I mean, you are the Raymond Kinsler of, to some mm -hmm. other people, right? Well, that's so, very flattering and, and very big shoes to fill, but thank you for saying so. Yeah, no, well, I, I believe it. Um, well, thank you a ton for doing this for me. I mean, thank you. and for all the people listening, this is such an opportunity. I wish we could talk a lot more because honestly, there's so much more I want to know about you, but maybe I'll, if you'd be willing, I'll we'll have do you a back part at some two point. Someday. Yeah, we'll do a if part you, two. If you have more than, if you have more than five people that listen to this, I'm willing to do a part two. <laughs> yeah. Well, it might take like a year for more than five people to listen, but that's my fault, not yours. <laughs> all right. Well, Hey, thanks again. I appreciate you doing thank this. You, all right, I'm have, such a big fan of yours. I love your work, and thank you so much for doing this, and thank you for your support of the Porch Society. We oh, are so course. grateful. Of course. Ditto. All right. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the Undraped Artist Podcast. If you enjoyed it, subscribe. And if you could, leave a comment or review. That really helps the channel. Please share the show with your friends, and if you're feeling generous, consider a monthly donation at theundrapedartist.com. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next week.